Chapter 22 of The Call of the Wildflower This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele Pooley The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt April in Snowdonia it is Easter Sunday. The hills are high and stretch away to heaven. De Quincey So wrote De Quincey in one of his finest dream fugues. There seems in truth to be a certain fitness in the turning of men's thoughts at the spring season to the heights of the mountains, where, as nowhere else, the cares and ailments of the winter time are forgotten and it is a noticeable fact that these upland districts are now as thronged with visitors during Easter week as in August itself. As I write, I am sitting by a wood fire under a high rock in a sheltered nook at Kapilkurig, with a biting northeaster blowing overhead and an occasional snow squall whitening the hillsides around, while the upper ridges are covered in places with great fields and spaces of snow, which at times loom dim and ghostly through the haze, and then gleam out gloriously in the interludes of sunshine. The scenery at the top of Snowdon, the gliders, Carnegie Llewellyn, and the other giants in the district, has been quite alpine in character. The wind has drifted the snow in great pillowy masses among the rocks, or piled it in long cornices along the edges, and on several days, when the air was at its keenest, the snowfields have been crisp and firm, and have afforded excellent footing as a change from the rough screes and crags. At other times, when the sun has shone out warmly, the snow has been soft and treacherous, and the spectacle has often been seen of the two trustful tourists struggling waist-deep. Mid-April in Snowdonia, when March has been cold and wet, shows scarcely an advance from midwinter as far as the blossoming of flowers is concerned. Down by the coast, the land is gay with gorse and primroses, but in the bleak upland dales that radiate from the great mountains, hardly a bloom is to be seen. Nor do the river banks and marshy pastures as yet show so much as a king cup, a spear ward, or a celandine. The visitors have come in their multitudes to walk, to climb, to cycle, to motor, to take photographs, or to take fish, as the case may be. But if one of them were to confess that he had come to look for flowers, he would indeed surprise the natives. Still more if he were to point to the upper ramparts of the mountains, among the rocks and snows and clouds, as a place of his design. Yet it is there that we must climb, if we would see the pride of the purple saxifrage, the earliest of our mountain flowers, blessed by botanists with the cumbrous name of Saxifraga oppositifolia, and often grown by gardeners who know it as a Swiss immigrant, but not as a British native. A true alpine, 
it is not found in this country much below 2,000 feet. And in Switzerland, its range is far higher, for it is a neighbour and a lover of the snows. Small and slight as it may seem, when compared with some of its more splendid brethren of the Alps, it has the distinction of a high-bred race, the character of the genuine mountaineer. It is a wearer of the purple, indeed, as well as in name. But our approach to the home of the saxifrage is not to be accomplished without toil, in weather which is a succession of boisterous squalls. Under such a gale, we have literally to push our way in a five-mile walk to the foot of the hills. And as we climb higher and higher up the slopes, we have a ceaseless tussle with a strong invisible foe who buffets us from every side in turn, while he hisses against the sharp edges of the crags or growls with dull subterranean noises under the piles of fallen rocks. As for the streams, they are blown visibly out of their steep channels and carried in light spray across the hillside, while sheets of water are lifted from the surface of the lake. Not till we reach the base of the great escarpment which forms the northeast wall of the mountain are we able to draw breath in peace. For there, under the topmost precipices, flecked with patches of snow, is a strange and blissful calm. But now, just when our search begins, the mists, which have long been circling overhead, creep down and fill the upland hollow where we stand, cutting off our view not only of the valley below, but of the range of cliffs above, and confining us in a sequestered cloudland of our own. Still climbing along a line of snowdrifts, which follows a ridge of rocks, and which serves at once as a convenient route for an ascent and a safe guide for a return, we scan the likely-looking corners and crevices for the object of our pilgrimage. At first in vain, and then fears begin to assail us that we may be doomed to disappointment. Can we have come too early? even for so early a plant in a backward season? Or have some wandering tourists or roving knights of the trail, for such there are, robbed the mountainside of its gem? For this saxifrage, owing to the brightness of its petals on the grey and barren slopes, is so conspicuous as to be at the mercy of the passerby. But even as we stand in doubt, there is a gleam of purple through the mist. And yonder, on a boss of rock, is a cluster of the rubies we have come not to steal, but to admire. What strikes one about the purple saxifrage when seen at close quarters, its many bright flowerets peering out from a cushion of moss, is the largeness of the blossoms in proportion to the shortness of the stems. A precocious, wide-browed little plant it looks as if the cares of existence at these wintry altitudes had given it a somewhat thoughtful cast. At a distance, it makes a splash of colour on the rocks, and from the high cliffs above, it hangs out, here and there, in tufts that are fortunately beyond reach.
Having paid our homage to the flower, we leave it on its lofty throne among the clouds and ascend by snow slopes and scree slides to the windy, blossomless valley beneath. A month hence, when the season of the Welsh poppy, the globe flower and the butterwort is beginning, the reign of the purple saxifrage will be at an end. To be appreciated as it deserves, it must be seen not as a poor captive of cultivation, but in its free, wild environment, among the remotest fastnesses of the mountains. The wild animal life on the hills, so noteworthy in the later spring, seems as yet to have hardly awakened. We saw a white hare one afternoon on Carned Llewellyn, but that was the only beast of the mountains that crossed our path during eight days climbing, nor were the birds so numerous as might have been expected. The croak of the raven was heard at times in his high breeding places, and on another occasion there was a triple conflict in the air between a raven, a buzzard and a hawk. On the lower moorlands, the curlew was beginning to arrive from his winter haunts by the seashore, and small flocks of gulls, driven inland by the winds, were hovering over the waters of Lynn Ogwen, where we saw several of them mobbing a solitary heron, who seemed much embarrassed by their onslaught, until he succeeded in getting his great wings into motion. But if bird life is still somewhat dormant in these lofty regions, there have been plenty of human migrants on the wing. From our high watchtower, we saw daily, far below us, the long line of motorists, those terrestrial birds of prey, speeding along the white roads and flying past a hundred entrancing spots, as if their object were to see as little as possible of what they presumably came to see. Flocks of cyclists, too, were visible here and there, avoiding the cars as best they could, and drinking not so much the wind of their own speed, in the poet's words, as the swell and dust of the motors, while on the bypaths and open hillsides swarmed the happier foot travellers, pilgrims in some cases from long distances over the mountains, or skilled climbers with ropes coiled over their shoulders and faces set sternly towards some beetling crag or black gully in the escarpment above. In one respect only are they all alike, that they are birds of passage and are here only for the holiday. Soon they will be gone, and then the ancient silence will settle down once more upon the hills, and buzzard and raven will be undisturbed, until July and August bring the great summer incursion. End of chapter 22